Genesis chapter 47. I once heard a pastor uh, of a pastor from a downriver area church who used to direct all the believers in this church. He would say things like, if you want to know what the Lord's will is for your life, come and ask me. I'll tell you what it is. I'm your pastor. You need to obey me. So if you need to choose between this car and that car, come and ask me. I'll tell you. I need to choose between this college and that college, this wife or that wife. Uh, this, uh, I would say that. You know what I mean. Um, so, so he would be the source of, of their wisdom. Now, now, that pastor is no longer in ministry, and uh, we probably thank God for that. But, uh, but I've, he- I've heard of many other pastors who, who operate along those same, um, those same sorts of mindsets. And perhaps you've heard of pastors that talk in that way as well. And while that is true, that, that, that it is despicable to lead in that way, uh, to have that much pride, uh, there is something to be said about a person who knows God's Word. Uh, a person who knows God's Word so well that they can help discern the mind of God on things in life where the Bible is silent. And uh, what I'm not trying to do is advocate the way in which he carried that out, but what I am saying is is that there are some great men of wisdom, great women of wisdom that we should go to and ask for help when we get to a situation that we've really just hit a roadblock. We don't see what God's purposes could be in this situation. We we don't know what would be the best thing in the mind of God. The, the scriptures don't say which which car I ought to choose or which job I ought to choose. And so it is wise to seek out counselors as Proverbs talks about, right? There's a great wisdom in the multitude of counselors. I count uh, Pastor Doran, my, my pastor of uh, about 13 years, one of the wisest people I know. I've seen him handle the Scriptures as he preached. I saw him handle Scripture in counseling sessions. I saw him handle the Scripture in the classroom. And if I had ever came to a situation where I was stuck and I didn't know what God wanted for me, he would be the guy that I would go to and ask for help. I would ask for wisdom. He was reading the same Bible that I was reading, but he was able to recall passages that I hadn't thought about. He was able to think through principles that I hadn't thought through. And he was able to apply them to my, my specific situation in a way that I hadn't thought to do. And so there is a sense in which we should um, turn to these type of people, people who are are wise about the Scriptures. And I'm not saying just pastors. There are lots of wise people that God has gifted the church with, and so we can we can go to a lot of different people. But but the point is is that that it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's often a good thing. Um, but I hope you would also recognize that we should not depend on counselors for all of our wisdom. We should not fully depend on them. That is not that we don't trust what you're saying, but we we shouldn't go to them for every single area of wisdom that we have to, or every choice that we have to make. Now, I don't know what to do here, so I'll just defer to my my counselor here. I'm going to see what he has to say or she has to say about it. I mean, at some point, we should be able to discern what God wants us to do based on our understanding of the Scriptures based on how God has worked in the past in the Scriptures and also in our own lives 
perhaps how He has delivered us in certain situations in the past or how we've seen Him deliver someone else. And so we go to God for that. Now, uh, what I'm not suggesting is that these are mutually exclusive. Either you go to God or you go to counselors. But what I am saying is that there should be a maturity about each one of us that allows us to not be fully dependent upon a counselor or a person of wisdom. That we should get to a point in our lives where we are so confident in the mind of God because we know His Word so much that we make a choice believing it to be the right choice, the best choice. We are so confident in God and His desires His will that that we make a choice and we do it confidently so. Jacob here at the end of his life is this type of man. He's a man that doesn't have to go now to people outside of him. He doesn't have to scheme his way to get what he wants anymore. He's understood God to a point because of his maturity, his spiritual maturity, that he's now able to make confident choices about his future and Specifically, we'll see here about the future of his family. So let me read this passage that we have. A little bit of a shorter passage tonight. um, Beginning in chapter 47 with verse 28. Chapter 47, verse 28. This is the Word of God. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. And so he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. And then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Mature believers can discern God's desire for their future with confidence. Mature believers can discern God's desires for their future with confidence. This is Jacob. And uh, we'll see this played out here in these several verses. First, we'll see that mature believers trust in God's promises. 
And then we'll see that mature believers develop confidence for the future based on past blessings. And then finally, we'll see that mature believers recognize God's unique ways. And this uh, outline is developed or derived from Alan Ross's commentary. I borrowed from his. I think he had the best uh, structure for this passage. We will go through verse 22 of chapter 48, at the end of chapter 48, but, but I just started with these first several verses just to give us a, a taste of this passage. So first, number one, mature believers trust in God's promises. Verses 28 through 31. Jacob had lived, it says there in verse 28, he lived in Egypt for 17 years. And that means that when he came to Egypt, he was 130 years old because now he's coming to a point where he's about to die. Isaac, his father, lived till he was 180. Abraham lived to 175. And so Jacob dies much earlier than his father and grandfather. But Jacob's greatest concern here was to see God follow through on His promises. His greatest concern was His faith. To see God follow through on His promises. God had spoken to him in the same place. This place that He calls uh, Luz in chapter 48, verse 3. God had spoken to him to be, this place is later known as Bethel. And God there had promised him, you will be great. In chapter 28 of Genesis, Jacob had arrived there the first time. Remember, he had this dream. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending. And God spoke to him. And he told him what, what uh, Jacob now repeats here in chapter 48, verse 4. We'll get there here. But God also gave him another promise at Bethel. Turn to chapter 46, verse 3. And this is a... We could say the other promise was a familial Response, uh, a promise. That is, it's, it's for him and his family. This one is a personal promise. Chapter 46, verse 3. A personal promise. It says, He said, God does. When, okay, let me just give you a little background here. Jacob, or Joseph's brothers come back to Jacob to tell him that Joseph is alive and you need to come back with us to Egypt to live there. This is the way that you're going to survive. This is a way that all of our families are going to survive. And so Jacob makes a choice. I think God would want me to do this. I trust that God's going to bring us back to this land of Canaan. So I'm going to go. And as he goes, he stops to worship God here in Bethel, in the city of Luz. Same, same idea. And here's what God says to him. He reassures him that he made the right choice. Verse 3, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Okay, so here's a, a repetition of that first promise that he received at Bethel. I'm going to make you a great, great nation just as I promised to your father Isaac and just as I promised to your grandfather Abraham. That is the first promise. That's more of a, what I would call familial promise. It's more for him and his family. But notice this personal promise in verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt, God says. And I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Hey, we understand that last phrase to mean that Joseph will be there when you die. That's the idea there of, of him closing his eyes. He will be there when you die. He, you will die in the land of Egypt. Joseph will be there. But here's the personal promise at the beginning of the verse. I'm going to go down with you, 
and I will bring you back up again. And the you there, as I mentioned when we went through that the first time, is a singular you. He's not saying you and your family. He's saying you, Jacob, I'm going to bring you back. And so Jacob has a personal promise that he himself is going to be brought back to the land of Canaan. And so based on that promise that he had received from God, he acts upon that promise. Turn back to chapter 47 and verse 29. Uh, 20, 29, yes. Chapter 47, verse 29. He enters into an agreement with Joseph. And notice what the content of this agreement is. When the time for Israel, verse 29, to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my father, she shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So, we know this is an agreement. This is a formal agreement because Jacob asks Joseph to put his hand under his thigh. It's it would be similar to us um, shaking hands or writing a contract or you know, putting our hands on, hand on a Bible. This is a, a solemn oath that Joseph is making. Yes, I will take you back. When you go to be with your fathers, when you die, then take, he's saying, take my body to my fathers, to their burial place. And Joseph, of, of course, agrees to this. And, um, and this turns into a binding promise. He says, no. Notice the end of verse 30. Uh, Joseph says, I will do this as you you have said. Verse 31, he said, swear to me. And so he swore to him. Make it it official, Joseph, that you're really going to do this. Now, we may think, here goes Jacob again. Another act of scheming. I mean, why not Jacob distrust God? God said He would bring you back to the land of Canaan, so why not just trust that God will do it Himself? Why do you have to get your hands involved in everything? But I believe this is actually a declaration of Jacob's faith here. That because God had promised that Jacob would be buried in the land of Canaan, Jacob acted. Because I know God's going to bring me back I'm going to enter into a solemn oath and make sure that it happens. Not that God is not true to His promise. He can't get me back there on my own, on His own. But, but that because God has promised this, I'm going to act. And this is a, this is a declaration of Jacob's faith. He had faith in God's promises. His faith is further seen in verse 31 after Joseph swears to him, notice the end of the verse, then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Some people suggest that this bowing in gratitude, uh, that this is bowing in gratitude to Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. I really appreciate what you're doing here. But turn to Hebrews chapter 11 because I think Hebrews gives a great commentary on what Jacob was actually doing. Not giving thanks to Joseph, although that may have been a part of their conversation, but that's not what he's doing when he bows his head here at the end of the bed. Chapter 11, verse 21. Hebrews chapter 11. You know this chapter as the what many people call the hall of faith. Many of the faithful men and women who have gone before us and who expressed their faith in God, even 
though they couldn't see what would, would finally take place. And so the reason I think this is worship and not gratitude to Joseph is because the writer of Hebrews says that Jacob acted in faith when he worshipped. Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, it's amazing because Hebrews doesn't record any other act of faith by Jacob. Not that Jacob didn't express any other faith throughout his lifetime, but this is the only one that it records. And perhaps that is because this is the most significant act of faith on the part of Jacob. That he was so confident in what God would do in his life and the life of his family that he acted in this way. He worshipped by leaning on the top of his staff. This Translation here, the top of his staff is taken from the Greek, but but the the Greek writer here, whoever this was, many people think this was Paul that wrote this book, but whatever the case, he took it from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's exactly how it's worded there. It's, he's leaned, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, in our translation back in Genesis, remember it was at the head of his bed. And, uh, and so this is probably a, uh, really a better translation. It's the same idea is there that he probably had to lean on his staff at the end of his bed. Remember, he's very weak at this time. He has to sit up before uh, Joseph comes in. Whatever the case, what we know is that Hebrews calls this, notice, an act of worship. And he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Now, is he worshipping Joseph? No. No, he... He was worshiping God even though he did nothing else other than what we're going to see is give a blessing to Joseph and his sons. He doesn't there's nothing else recorded about him praying or offering a sacrifice or anything. No, he he's giving a blessing blessing to Joseph and making an oath with him or making an agreement with him, a covenant to have his bones carried back. What he's doing here is he's putting all of his future hope, Jacob is, putting all of his future hope in the promises of God. And that is worship. He is confidently believing in God's promises to the point that he's putting all of his confidence in that, in that God and in that promise. So turn back to Genesis chapter Genesis chapter 40. Seven or forty-eight, Genesis chapter forty-eight. So the first thing that we see here, the end of chapter forty-seven, is that mature believers trust in God's promises, and the expression of that trust is seen in their understanding of God's ways and in their confident steps of obedience and faith. I know that God's going to bring me back to a place where where uh, I will be buried in the land of Canaan. And because that is true, I'm going to, to enter an in, into an agreement with, with Joseph so that that happens. And I'm going to bless my sons and grandsons, as we'll see here uh, in this passage and then also next week in chapter 49. 
So first, mature believers trust in God's promises. Secondly, mature believers develop confidence for the future based on past blessings. Mature believers develop confidence for the future based on past blessings. Verses one through seven. Here, Joseph speaks to or Jacob speaks to Joseph, and notice the content of his conversation. Verse three. He recalls this vision that he had with God at Luz or Bethel, and he recalls the promises that were made to him. Verse 3, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz or Bethel in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples and give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. So the first part of what he speaks to Joseph about is about God and His promises. It shows you where Jacob's mind is here as a mature believer now. Second, verse 5, he elevates Ephraim and Manasseh to the status of full sons. Look at verse 5. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Sibion are mine. Now we'll talk about how this works and how this plays out in the verses to come. But what's going on here is that, that God is going, or Jacob is going to make these two grandsons full heirs. Third, verse 7, the third part of, of what he's going to do is he recalls the death of Joseph's mother. Look at verse 7. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. He recalls the death of, of Joseph's mother. Now, he probably isn't doing this to complain. You know, poor me, my, my poor wife died. But more likely, he's showing that despite her death, as we'll see in the verses ahead, her sons would possess one quarter of the land. Remember how many sons she had? Only two, right? Joseph and who? And Benjamin. And yet, they only make up one-sixth, right? Two out of twelve of all the sons of Jacob, and yet they're going to possess one-quarter of the land. And uh, we'll see how that, how that works. Part of it is because right, Joseph gets a double portion of the material blessing that instead of it going to Joseph himself getting one portion, he gets a double portion, so it goes to one of each of his sons. And so now they have three out of twelve of the blessings. So one quarter of the land will belong to uh, to Joseph's mother, amazingly. And so Jacob is recounting to Joseph the past graces of God that even though she has died and she probably could have borne some more children in her lifetime, God still did something great in the life of her two sons. So look back at verse 5 because now we see that Jacob makes Joseph's two sons full heirs. He makes his grandsons full heirs. Instead of them just getting really a half of a portion, right? it would go to Joseph and he would have to split it up between his two sons. Now they become full heirs, so they get a full portion each. Verse 5, Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. As I'm going to treat them just like they are my own sons. Even though they're one generation removed from me, I'm going to treat them, give them the full rights of inheritance just like I would my own sons. 
Then in a sense, he would be adopting them. And uh, actually better than that, because as we'll see next time, uh, they're going to move to a position of prominence because remember, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi all move out of disfavor and they become kind of like the firstborns, the firstborn sons. This is what is known as the blessing of the birthright. Remember, this is what Jacob tricked his father out of, the birthright, or he tricked his brother out of, I should say. He sold, he bought it for uh, this, in exchange for this bowl of, of food to Esau. It was, this was the material portion of the blessing that would come down from the patriarch, uh, that, that this patriarch would have all this land that would be possessed by him, and he would say, this is yours. Okay, this is yours. You get a double portion. So, let's say there were just uh, you know two sons in the family. Instead of okay, you get this portion, this half, and you get this half. No, you get two portions. So it'd be like you get two thirds, and the other you get the rest. The second son. So in the case where you have twelve, the first son normally would get a double portion, as if they were two sons themselves. And Reuben obviously defiled himself with his his stepmother, and and fell out of favor. We'll look at that next week. And so Joseph steps into to line and, and able to receive this birthright for his sons. Think about Jacob's faith here. What was he really giving to these grandsons? What, what land did he really own? I mean, if you think about it, besides Shechem where he would be buried that his grandfather purchased, and apparently what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to buy that back or, or at least fight for that land later. But besides that, how much land did Jacob really own? He was living on borrowed land. He was living on the land of Egypt. He didn't own the land of Goshen. And so when he gives this material portion of the blessing, what was he giving? He really didn't have anything in his pockets. He didn't have any title deeds to any land. But actually he did, didn't he? Because he believed in the promises of God. That God would give this land to my descendants. And that means that their descendants will take possession of this land when we get it. He knew precisely what they were going to get. The land of Canaan. Because his grandfather had been shown that land by God himself. And this shows Jacob's great faith in what God would do that God would be faithful to his promise God hadn't God hadn't uh, you know brought anything to the table yet as far as possessions Jacob didn't have anything but he knew that God would because God is faithful to his promises and so the way that we develop confidence in how God wants us to live and in the future that God wants us to have is by doing what Jacob did and that is looking to the past. How has God been faithful to me in the past? Or, how has God been faithful to other people? And that's why the Scriptures are here. One of the reasons. To help us see how God has been faithful to other people in the past. So, how has He done that in the past? He has been faithful. He's never been unfaithful to me. He's always followed through on His promises. So, if He says that this is going to happen, whatever it is, and I can trust Him. I can put all my confidence in Him. I can be sure that He's going to follow through. 
on that promise. Why am I sure that God's going to do this thing? Because I know God. I know God. I've seen how He's worked before. Have you ever been given a birthday present, or have you ever given a birthday present to someone, and you were completely confident that they would love it? You were completely confident that they would not hate that present, but they would enjoy that present. Has that ever happened to you? Before they even opened the present, you weren't fretting whether they were going to like it or not. You knew that they were going to like it. How do you know that? Because you know the person. Right? You know the person. You know what they love. You know what they don't love. One year for Christmas, we bought our kids a Nintendo Wii. But you know, when we bought that and wrapped it up, Jennifer and I were not sitting on the couch thinking, I wonder if they're going to like this. Right? I hope we didn't waste our money on this. We knew that they would like it because we know our kids. We know that they had played it before. And that when they saw that, they would be excited. We were confident because why? Because we know our kids. We know what they like. We know what they dislike. And so the way that we develop confidence in what God wants for our future, okay, the way that we develop confidence in what He, His will is, what His desires are for us, is by knowing Him. So if you are constantly kind of you know waffling through life, not sure... Does God really want me to do this? I don't know. Then what I'm suggesting to you is that you need to know God better. When you know God, you will take confident steps of faith because you've seen Him work. You see what He likes. You see what He dislikes. And even when, and there will be lots of times like this, even when the Bible is not explicitly clear, okay, yes, you should take this trip down to Florida. The Bible is not going to tell you one way or the other. You're not going to, you know, thumb through here and, and find the word Florida in here for one. So, so the Bible is not explicitly clear for, about that. Or should I spend this amount of money on whatever? The Bible is not going to tell you that explicitly. But there are principles. And the way that you know whether that is a confident choice that you can make is if you know God. And as you begin to know his desires, his the things that he hates, you can make confident choices based on faith. And obviously that should be based in prayer and and for the purpose of his own glory. That this is something, God, that you would want. I'm I'm putting your interests above my own when I make this choice. Not primarily so that I can have what I want, although I hope our desires are in line with him, so it's not like we're forcing ourselves to, to do these things. But, but ultimately, God, I'm doing this for you. And as we begin to know God more, as we develop a relationship with Him, as we mature in our relationship with Him, we will be able to make more confident choices in our, with, with regard to our future. So, uh, mature believers trust in God's promises. Mature believers develop confidence in future blessings based on past blessings. They look back to the past, see how God has worked, and based on that, they make choices about the future. And then finally, mature believers recognize God's unique ways, verses 8 through 22. Mature believers recognize God's unique ways. 
In verses 8-16, through 16, Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob. Uh, let's read these verses, verses 8-16. through 16. When Israel saw Joseph's son, sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. And Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, and toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my father, fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Joseph brings his sons before Jacob because now it's time for their blessing. And this is very reminiscent for us of Isaac's last day. Remember when he was ready to bless his oldest son. It turned out that Isaac would live for another 43 years. But at the time when he blessed What he thought was Esau, chapter 27, verse 1, says that Isaac was blind. His eyes were dim. And so he had to verify that this, in fact, was his son. And now Jacob, the one who had tricked Isaac, is now in that place, in the place of where his father was. He had lost his sight, apparently. His eyes had grown so dim that he could not see, the text says. And... Joseph comes up, puts them in the proper spot. He puts uh, the older Manasseh with Jacob's right hand, which would be the, the hand of prominence. And he puts the younger Ephraim with the left hand, the, the one who would be blessed second. And so Joseph puts them in the proper spots. But did you notice what, what Jacob did in verse 14? He stretched out his hands and he switches them. And he puts his right hand, the hand of prominent blessing, would go on Ephraim, the secondborn, and the left hand, the second, the one who would receive the second portion of the blessing, on Manasseh. He switched his hands, and Joseph thinks this is a mistake. Look at verse 17. Then Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hands to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Joseph's saying, What are you doing? Okay, you're, you're blind. You, you, you're putting your hands on the wrong guy. Notice Jacob's response in verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will become great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. 
I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Jacob says, the point is not that I'm going to bless Ephraim alone. I've switched hands here. Not that I'm going to bless the secondborn alone, but, but actually both of them are going to be blessed. Ephraim will receive the greater blessing. Ephraim would get the second or the extra portion according to verse 22, probably referring to this land that would, would go directly to Joseph when they, they actually populated the land. But the point is that both of them will be blessed. This is how much blessing is going to come upon you, Joseph. Both of these children of yours are going to be blessed. And so, mature believers recognize God's unique ways. That God often chooses the younger over the older, like He did with Jacob. Like He did with Isaac. Remember, Ishmael was the older. Like He did with Abraham, who also was not the oldest. Uh, we could go back to Noah's sons and and uh, and and to Seth and others. God chooses the younger often over the older. That doesn't mean that the older are not important. Not, that doesn't mean that He never chooses the older. But in their day, the the normal process would be that the older would be chosen. Yet Jacob here knows something about God that most people don't know. That God works in unique ways, and so He's going to bless the younger one over the older. Mature believers trust God's promises. They make choices on future, what, what, what uh, they ought to do in the future based on past, past blessings. And then they recognize God's unique ways. And so what we learn here is that mature believers can discern God's desire for their future with confidence. How confident are you, believer, in where you're going in life? Are you confident that God is leading you? Are you just kind of just swaying around with the wind? Are you confident that this is God who is leading you? I'm not trying to get you to doubt everything in your life, but I want you to see that your confidence in your future will be dependent on your knowledge of God. Your confidence in how God is leading you and where God wants you to go will be dependent on how much you know God. Are you a mature Christian? Have you learned from your past spiritual experiences like Jacob did? Now, it took more than 100 years for him to, to learn all these things. But, but have you learned from them? Have you seen how God's worked in the past, in your past, in the past with regard to the Scriptures? And so your confidence in your future, the steps that you take, are dependent on your understanding of God. Maybe you feel like you've been burned before by God. Maybe you don't want to trust God because, you know, it just doesn't seem right the way that He's treated me in the past. And so your steps, your steps towards the future are mixed with trust. Yeah, I trust you, God, but also mixed with scheming, like much of Jacob's life. Your confidence in the steps that you take, every future step that you take, whether big or small, is dependent on your knowledge of God. Turn to Psalm chapter 9. We'll finish here. Psalm chapter 9. And this verse tells us that the only reason that you don't trust God 
The only reason that you don't have confidence in where you're going is because you don't know God. And when I say that, I don't mean you don't know God spiritually, you're not a believer. I'm saying you don't know God as well as you should, as you ought to. If you don't trust God, it's because you don't know God as well as you ought to. Look at Psalm chapter 9, verse 10. Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Who is it that puts their trust in God, according to verse 10? Those who know your name. That doesn't mean they know that your name is spelled G-O-D. No. It is that you, they know your reputation. They know who you are. The name is a representation of who a person was. And so the same is true for God. Do we know God? If you don't trust God, it's because you don't know God as well as you ought to. And so if you can't take steps of confidence in the future, you can't take steps of faith based on what God has promised, it's because you don't know how God has worked in the past. You haven't seen it. Maybe you're not reflecting on how He has worked in your past. You're not reflecting how He's worked in the past of believers in the Scriptures. But those who know your name will trust you. Why? What's the end of the verse say? You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You have never done that. You are a faithful God. And because you always have been faithful, I know that you always will. Jacob understood this at the end of his life. You have been faithful to my grandfather, my father, and me, despite all my scheming. And I know God's going to be faithful to me in the future. Nothing's changed on the part of God, has it? And the same is true for you. Nothing's changed on the part of God. He always has been faithful to you. He has always been faithful to His people. And He always will be. And if you don't trust Him, if you don't understand the right steps to take, don't fret. I mean, that takes time. We're all learning. We all need to to know God more. But, But there is a sense in which we should be maturing in that, in knowing God more, seeing how He has worked, and then taking steps of faith. Taking steps of confidence because we know God. Do you know God? Do you know God as well as you ought to know Him? If you do, then you will be confident in His leading of your life. Just like we knew they were going to like that gift, you will know that this is what God wants because you know Him so well. It's not about a big checklist that we have to you know, check all these things off. I know all these facts about God. But it's, I've spent so much time with God, I know how He would respond in these situations. I've seen Him in these situations before, and I can, I can just picture Him in this situation that I'm going through right now. So I'm going to take a step of faith and do this thing. Those who know Your name will trust You. For You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek You. Let's pray. Father, today we have seen by Your sovereignty, by Your uh, perfect plan, in both messages that we've looked at today, there is maturity required on the part of us. That those who are spiritual are the ones who are to restore those who have fallen in sin. Those who are spiritually mature 
And so we have a responsibility that way. And tonight we've seen that those who are spiritual, those who are mature spiritually, are the ones who take steps of faith. They discern what you want for their future and then they take confident steps toward what you want them to do. And so we recognize that that we have some work to do, each one of us. I have some work to do with regard to my understanding of you, my trusting of you. There are times when I know clearly what it is that I need to do, but I don't want to do it because I think I have a better way. And when I do that, I ashamedly remove you from the from your throne as God and put myself in your place. I've really exalted my own thinking above your own and have become idolatrous. And for that, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask you to change me. And I pray that each one of us would reflect in our lives where we need, with regard to where we need to trust you more. That we need to take steps of faith, steps of confidence to do what is right, knowing that you will be there with us till the end. That you will never leave us or forsake us. That you will cause us to persevere all the way till the end. May we trust in your promises even when things are not very clear, when they are not explicitly clear in Your Word, we ask for Your grace to do that. Lord, we don't want to make excuses for our our actions, but You know that we are feeble, we are weak, we are prone to wander, we are prone to do things our own way, and so we pray that You would bring us back to the right path. Use people in this church and our families to help us to see the truth of Your Word and the right course that we ought to take. And I pray that You would be glorified as a result of the change that You will make in our lives as a result of having heard Your Word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.